For those of you who don't know me, I'm Marcus Hughes, um, Director of Indigenous Engagement here at the National Library. Um, and I'm delighted to be able to host um, a session this evening with, with Dr Judith Crispin, who has become a dear friend and colleague. But from the outset, I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nations people, the First Australians, as the traditional owners and custodians of this land and pay respect to the elders past and present and through them to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I'd like to acknowledge my colleagues today that are in the room. I'd like to acknowledge Judith and her remarkable work. And this evening we, we, we come together, we gather on the land of the Ngunnawal and the Ngambri to share, to learn a little bit about the world around us and to celebrate the business that comes from a week like Reconciliation Week. For many of us, Reconciliation Week is a great opportunity for us to come together to celebrate. But in that, that act of celebration, there is a great sense of sadness and sorrow. We come together, we laugh, but we cry. We support each other and that's really, really important. In saying that, we must acknowledge the devastating impact of colonisation on our peoples. the destruction of our knowledge systems, the loss of law, and the incredible impact that it's had on our families and our family structures. We acknowledge the stolen ones, we acknowledge the hidden ones. And tonight, we have the opportunity to spend some time with someone who has been researching, helping to unlock the mysteries, helping to find the knowledges that are hidden, that are sleeping, that were stolen. Um, Judith, thank you, welcome. Thanks, Marcus. <laughs> um, so Judith has been with us as a, an honorary research fellow, which sounds proper flash and is. Um, and I'm really looking forward to hearing um, Judith's voice as she shares with us her experience here um, at the National Library. But Judith, rather than read a series of biodata notes. Um, would you like to tell us who you are? <laughs> sure. Um, I'm a flaky artist and poet, um, living in the Southern Tablelands with my, um, my family and my little um, dingo cross and a bunch of motorcycles out in the bush, making art and writing and um, 
getting to spend some lovely time here at the National Library. Yeah, I mean, there are boring things as well um, that I could say. I've had jobs, I've done degrees and PhDs and so on, but I don't think those things really define a person. Um, yeah. But you're an artist, a visual artist. Visual artist, yeah. You are a poet. You have a degree in music. Yeah. What was that about? Well, see, I spent a lot of time in music, then I realised I wasn't going to make any money that way, so I jumped to poetry. I'd go. <laughs> <laughs> a very wise decision. No, I think um, creativity is a force comes through a person and it can come out in a number of different ways. And we spent a lot of time, I think, in the grip of this patriarchal view that a person has to be an expert, they have to pick a discipline, they have to stick rigidly with this discipline. Mm. It's a kind of outdated European idea, really. Um, if you're a creative person, it's going to come through you one way or another. And um, for me, I just found that staying solely in music because of the kind of music I was writing, which was mostly orchestral music, I found that the only audience I had belonged to a certain socio-economic elite. And gradually over time, I ran out of things to say in that medium. So I then moved into something that I thought would then reflect the things I wanted to say now, you mm. know, things about my own country and, and my own life circumstances. Yeah, and yet it's, it's still a, a, um, a very lyrical, um, creative construct that you're working with. Yeah, music informs everything I do. Mm. All the books follow musical structures, my poems follow musical structures, not poetic structures. But then you think about what poetry actually is, and it's music. It's got metre and rhythm, it's got intonation, the way the voice rises and falls, it's got layers of meaning, it's, it's very, very closely allied to music. And it's also, like music, it's canvas is time. If you take visual art and you distill that then into a plane instead of time, you've again got principles that are really similar mm. to music. You can take everything that you learn from one art form and transfer it, it across to a completely different art form and find that you're not necessarily a beginner there. You can mm. bring certain things across. Mm. The important thing is, I think, to not get too rigid about the way that your creativity comes out or one day you sit down before a canvas and then nothing comes. Yeah, and, and throughout this evening you'll see some, some images. Um, some are by old fella Tommy McRae. Um, other images interspersed are by Dr Judith Crispin um, that also have that same kind of lyrical quality to them. So does that work with your visual arts practice as well? Yeah. Part of me wanting to do this book, looking at Tommy McRae's work, is, you know, just recognising this kindred spirit. Mm. You know, he and I both obviously reached this point where you just, you can grapple with all of the trauma and you can rant and rave about it all, or you can just go and hunt a possum, you know? And I just, you do, I just reached the point where I just, I wanted to sit under a tree more than I wanted to fight with people. Mm. And you can see that in, in Tommy McRae's thing too. There's this, he's living in this time of incredible conflict where his own people are being massacred and he could have been so bitter. Mm. But instead, he's drawing these pictures of five guys trying to hunt one possum. You know, and there's this, this sense, it's almost like that Swedenborgian 
sense of heaven and hell being in the same place and it just depends which one you're focusing on mm. at any given time, heaven and hell layered one over the other. And I, th and I think that's, that's true. It, without all that darkness, there wouldn't be the light either. So mm. he sort of holds both of them. And um, yeah, I sort of, there are differences, obvious differences, because we're, we occupy different places in time, but a, a lot of similarities as well. And uh, of course, Tommy McRae would have been running around um, the same part of Victoria at the same time as Charlotte, mm. who I'm writing about. So there's that as well. Oh, Judith, thank you for that. Um, so do you want to tell us about Charlotte? Yeah, um, a lot of it I'm, is in the writing. Some of the things I'll read you in, in a little bit. But um, briefly, I have a family tree that's full of holes. I, I reckon most people in the room have a family tree that's full of holes. It seems to be part of being Australian. That, uh, because, of course, you know, if you were an Aboriginal person before about the 1960s, you didn't get a birth certificate. They even suspected you of being Aboriginal, you didn't get a birth certificate. And so, you know, when you go back and you try to fill the, in those holes, you can find enormous obstacles. The record was there to preserve a record of whiteness and to erase anything that didn't conform to that. Mm. And so when you're trying to find somebody without birth certificates, unless they were in emissions, there's no records of them. You know, I looked for Charlotte for 20 years and I would not have found her had it not been for the fact that one of her descendants had been looking for the missing branches of his family tree at the same time and found me. So, you know, with all my hubris of being a, a fantastic researcher, I was still found by a semi-literate man who'd been looking for me three months. I'd been looking 20 years and <laughs> <laughs> found nothing. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, when I say found, there's, there really wasn't much to be found. The existing records of her, you know, there's some entries in a family Bible of her name. There's a photograph. There are some anecdotes that have been passed down from person to person. Nobody really knows how accurate those anecdotes are. We have rough dates. There are some records of some of her children, but not all of them. So, you know, you come to the end of a 20-year search and you've got a handful of things in front of you which does not equal a person. And you have to decide, am I going to devote the next 20 years to trying to make that pile this big instead of this big? Or am I going to just try to make it right in my head some other way, you know? And so this project was to, was to create an imaginary biography for Charlotte, um, a biography that didn't overwrite hers, because firstly, she doesn't have one, and secondly, because I've placed myself in the biography so everybody can see immediately that this is me imagining this biography. Mm. But in, in a way, to sort of create, to, to flesh out this person, to, to create a little space for her in history. Mm. Uh, you know, it's probably something that a lot of people in this room have had to do with, uh, with um, family members. Mm. So how was Charlotte explained away by the family? Well, the various ways. Um, my grandmother sort of upped and moved the family to the other side of the country 
And then we had various narratives growing up about why we didn't speak to the family members that were in Victoria, because they were all compulsive liars. It was mostly because they were compulsive liars or they were drunk or, or even dead. We were, told, we were told some of them were dead and they weren't. There were things like that. Um, and then anybody who was sort of slightly darker skinned in the family photo album, they were Spanish or, uh, or Scottish. There were a lot, of, a lot of Scots because there were Moors that were, um, you know, pillaging the coast of Scotland and that must be where we all got our dark complexion from. Part of the, the motivation for me looking um, was just that the, the stories about these people were so conflicting and with no evidence whatsoever uh, for any of it, it was clear that nobody, either nobody knew or nobody was saying. Mm. Yeah. And, you, you know, it, it's easy to feel a bit judgmental about that, but I, but I think it's really important to understand that even when I was born, there was still um, kids being taken from their parents if they were an Aboriginal family. So uh, up to kids who were sort of only had a grandparent that mm. were Aboriginal were still being taken. So there was a very real um, chance if you told people you had Aboriginal ancestry that your kids would be taken away from you, mm. you know. And that, that's really important to, to remember that it, it wasn't just about notions of shame, it was no. fear. It was fear. Desperate, desperate fear. Desperate, and that fear still exists. Mm. Um, you know, there are m people in my extended family that uh, feel quite nervous about the fact that I'm sort of bringing a lot of this stuff out into the light. And I think a lot of that fear is, um, is intergenerational. You know, it passes down. We know there is something to fear. We know that there is still enormous racism against Aboriginal people. And so we're sort of a little bit silent. You know, and I addressed uh, some of those issues in the book too, this, this sense that um, the narrative has changed. You know, you're allowed to, to speak now if you've got a ped pedigree papers that you can pull out so everybody can examine them and make sure that you are really Aboriginal enough to be doing that. Otherwise, you're not allowed to speak. But then if you're a person and you're talking about your, you know, your, your Chinese or your French great-grandmother, everybody just goes, oh. You know, there's not the same sense of, of almost eugenics around it, that you have to make sure that you're entitled to be able to, to speak whatever is mm. true. So don't be speaking when you're just looking for somebody. You need to have found them in all their birth certificates and had a DNA test and all of this. It's treacherous waters mm. we're in. Absolutely. So with your research period here at the library, what was that like? It was... Um, it wasn't what I expected it would be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I came here expecting to write one kind of book. I was going to write a book about cultural erasure. I was feeling quite, um, quite feisty about the whole thing, actually. Um, you know, I was, going to, I was going to point the finger and say, look, there were all these massacres and you guys are all dreadful, and, and I had it all planned. And then I started looking through Tommy McRae's sketchbooks, and they're just so full of light. You know, this is a man who has so much more to feel bitter or angry about than I do, so much more. And yet he just chose to just show this such humour and, and, uh, and light-heartedness in these pictures. And it made me feel a little bit, I don't know, mean-spirited or something. Mm -hmm. And I, I started to sort of look at the material through this lens of these pictures 
by Tommy McRae. It really made me reframe the whole way I wanted to write, actually, mm. the, and the things I wanted to focus on changed as a result of that. And then there's the relationship between Charlotte and Tommy. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, Tommy, Tommy McRae was, we now talk about him as being quite quiet, um, but um, the, the current descendants of Tommy McRae identify as um, Bangarang or Gunai Kurnai. Some of them identify as Yorta Yorta. Mm -hmm. But it's the group of people that lived in exactly the place that Charlotte lives. And essentially, they would have been in the same community at the same time. So what I found really interesting about that is, I mean, how do you write the biography of somebody who only exists in a photograph without a time machine? Well, Tommy McRae was my time machine, you know, because he was drawing the animals and the trees and the activities of Bangarang people at exactly that time. Um, so that suddenly created this, this possibility that, that I, I might not know her, but I could reconstruct her world, and it wouldn't be a world reconstructed just from the white anthropological record. Mm but it's actually a world that could be reconstructed through the eyes of Tommy McRae, you know, somebody who she, she may have sat down at, you know, and had a chat with at mm. one point or another. And you've been in conversation with, with Tommy's family. Well, just by sheer coincidence, uh, and it really was, that um, Uncle Freddie Dowling, he was the person who got in touch with me after my 20-year search and said, hey, I think I know who your mob are, <laughs> you know? And, um, and he is uh, the direct descendant of Tommy McRae and for a long time was the person in charge of this collection here. I didn't know any of this when I actually put in the application for this fellowship. It was only when I went to, to, to hunt down who Tommy McRae's ancestors were that I realised that I already knew them. <laughs> that it was Freddie and, and Rodney and uh, Al and, uh, yeah, the people I'd already been speaking with. So, yeah. Yes. It's a strange world that we live in. It really and we get is. pushed in those places by the old ones. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, there's this sort of magnetic pull towards these things. Sometimes you just don't know what you're looking for until you find it. Mm. So what's the next step? Well, I'm doing um, these poems uh, that have been written during the library um, fellowship they're going into a sort of a chapbook of poems that, is, that are isolated out, and that's poems about Charlotte. But some of those poems, too, are going into a larger work, mm. um, The Dingo's Noctuary, which is a book which addresses essentially how a person can form their own relationship with country. Um, if you think about the problems a lot of people have now, um, particularly people with ancestry, being able to reconnect you know, with their history, People in this land, whether they are white or black, are all struggling with this feeling of illegitimacy in the landscape. Mm. But at one point in history, if you go back far enough, there was a time when people formed a connection with country mm. and maintained that connection. Mm. So if they did it, we can do it. So the question then is how? How does a person... And, and I'm, I don't mean how does a person as a poetic metaphor, but how actually literally can an individual walk out onto the land and form a relationship as though they were doing, forming it with a person. It's a rabbit hole when you start looking at that because it brings into um, the equation all these things about your own family history and blood and 
who is entitled or is everybody entitled and all of mm. these questions. So I'm hoping that both of those works will be able to come out at the same time toward mm. the end of this year. Fantastic. Would you like to share any of that with us? Yeah. I think over the course of the night I'd like to, to read three of these um, excerpts. They're essentially prose poems, so um, not too scary for people that don't like poetry. <laughs> the first one, uh, some of the poets in the room will have already heard, and uh, the second two, probably not. The first one is called On Finding Charlotte in the Anthropological Record, which is really a kind of starting place for me for this, for this book. It was the first poem I wrote for this book, um, and it's um, it more or less begins at the beginning of the book. We meet on the surface of a photograph, as a fish and bird might meet in a lake at a point of sky and the water's plain. Charlotte, in a book called The Aborigines of Northern Victoria, sits jade black on earth, wind disarranging her hair. Trees obscured by falls of campfire ash, her nudity is covered by a blanket I don't know if her breasts are hanging, if her thighs bear designs or marks. A needlework of scars crosses her chest, repeated dots like patterns on a goanna's back, like rain spat by goannas into dirt. Soon, constellations will appear over branches on this night of 90 years ago, this never again night, and she asks me, where did you go, girl, with your made-up history, your ever-whiter babies? This is what remains, a record of relatedness, scars to hold the memory of someone precious after they've died. We begin by cutting skin, rub wounds with gum and ash, black ants to cauterize the flesh. I remember them telling me, don't worry, this blackness fades with each generation. Charlotte is a map of a country stained by massacres. Skull Creek, poisoned well, black gins leap. A geography of skin and land, maps for the returning. For those who speak only a murderer's tongue, whose songlines are erased, who consulted departments of births, deaths and marriages, who stood beside rented Toyotas, clutching photographs in a hundred remote communities, asking strangers, do you know my family? Can you tell me who I am? This moment, an old light is crossing the boundaries of emulsion, and I say to her, Charlotte, grandmother of my grandfather, I am Judith, and these are my scars. Thank you. You up for another read? Yep. Go on then. All right, all right. This is a, bit, a prosy bit. Um, it's longer than I want to read tonight, so it may. Uh, I will stop before I reach the end of it. Um, the day that I found out that Charlotte was a possibility in the universe was by 
the same, in the same year that Cassini, the satellite, launched. Um, and bizarrely, completely bizarrely, the year that Freddie showed up in my life, um, telling me that, you know, who, I, who my family came from, mm. was the year that Cassini slammed into Saturn. <laughs> I don't know, I don't want to read too much into that, but I am mentioning <laughs> it. <laughs> Charlotte landed like a comet in a letter from my uncle in 1997. The same year Cassini catapulted through cloud tops at Cape Canaveral on a blinding column of flame. He'd found her name, spider scrawled, in the margins of my grandmother's Bible, Charlotte Maybe Clark above a family tree with missing branches. If you'd a brain in your head, he said, you'd claim Spanish or dark-skinned Celt, whatever stopped them taking your kids. He drove to Beechworth or Wangaratta, met an old man, maybe better to leave well enough alone. Cassini's one-way trip to Saturn and my own journey began together. By mission's end, Cassini and her fledgling probe will have transited 7.9 billion kilometres between stars orbiting the ring world and its area of, of ice moons 294 times. I remember my grandmother's house at Somersby Falls at five or six, my uncle reading Charlotte's Web, his voice drowning in rain and the night vespers of frogs and how, in half-sleep, I thought I glimpsed her black orb shining in the fold between pages. There are spider spring strings, my grandmother said, connecting us to everyone we've ever loved. My uncle and I once climbed in darkness above the falls to watch Venus lifted by a rising sun on her string of zodiacal light. When you see the extent of the light, it takes your breath away. We're Celtic, I was told. So Celtic, if we went to Scotland, they'd give us a castle. <laughs> Our dark skin came from moors, plundering Scotland's coast in their blackness with their bright blades curving, and that's why they call me Piccaninny at school, because I'm so Scottish. When you see the extent of the lie, the entire fairy tale shimmers and disappears. The moors, in their golden age of cinema, ships are gone. At Summersby Falls, a girl playing in the shade looks up to see figures ghosting under trees, and they say to her, maybe better leave well enough alone. Even if you find us, you won't belong. You'll never belong to anything again. The day my uncle died, I dreamed he was suspended between Earth and the satellites in a silken cocoon. There are spider strings like electric wires connecting us to everyone we've ever loved, to country, our mother, grandmother, mothership. The day my uncle died, Cassini turned above an extraterrestrial ocean to watch a moon being born. Maybe I should try to write the word truth into this story. A strong word, a word like a pedestal to stand on, a word to cast me as a cultural heroine, restoring Charlotte to history, truth burning on my tongue like an immolating dove. But human beings can't be divided into regions like lines on a map. Like others born to this age of colonial fallout, I am the legacy of erasure, a co-mingling of incompatible bloods, this settler blood, this blood of a speaking land. 9,000 kilometres over Saturn's cloud tops, a gargantuan circulating vortex opens like a hurricane's eye. 
Cassini, through a break in the gyre, watches a permanent hexagonal storm raging around the pole. Electricity, vortices and convective clouds, plumes of ammonia and ice mist are carried out into the atmosphere on powerful winds, and Cassini, her flanks silvered in nocturnes of shifting starlight, listens high above the storm to Saturn's lightning. When rain falls in the desert, it disturbs the waterholes. Mud and ochre begin to separate. The heavy clay sinks, and millions of weightless light-reflecting particles spiral up to the surface. Maybe truth is like that, mud-bound and transcendent. After the tall ships, we defined everyone by race. It's more polite now. Nobody uses terms like mixed blood, hybrid, part breed, one drop, pick an any race trader anymore. But those with Aboriginal ancestries, like prize poodles, still have to produce their pedigree papers on demand. All of our stories are overwritten by taxonomies of power. When you see how easy it is to dismiss a dingo as a mongrel or a wild dog, so when you poison them, you're not killing a native animal. When you see their carcasses hanging on a fence or strung up in trees, you fall silent. It's dangerous to be noticed if you don't have a pedigree. Maybe truth is just something that separates when it rains, something falls as clay, something lifts and spangles. I am Judith of the Nowhere People, and I'm not afraid anymore. My arteries carry the blood of Celts and Moors, Blood from France, Armenia, Mali and the Ivory Coast. Blood from the Bangarang of the Murray River. I am a mongrel, wild dog, hybrid and piccaninny. I'm a dingo. Have you ever wondered what it could mean to be free from all this culture? These stories of belonging, these beautiful names, seeds planted in our heads as children. If I could erase everything an authority has told me about how I should see the world, how would I actually see it? An ancestor is not contained in a photograph. If you want to call the dead, you'll first have to find the spider string that connects you. Somewhere 1.2 billion kilometers out in space, solar winds stream from Saturn's moon, sparking the auroras. Cassini only sees them in ultraviolet light when the poles are cold and dark. Remarkably strong messages. Where do your words come from? I've no idea. I don't know that any of us know that. I have got. To, I've no idea what I'm going to write until I read what I've, till I read what I've written, and then sometimes I don't agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's one of the great things about poetry is, mm. is part of the reasons why you're, why you're writing is to try to understand what's, what's in your head, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, do you have those conversations with yourself? I, I have huge arguments with myself yeah. about it. I have to be really careful coming back and editing it because sometimes I'll be really mean to myself and completely overwrite things and then I'll have to come back in a different mode and put them back. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you have an image of Charlotte. Yeah. Does she speak to you through that? I sort of 
you know, it's funny because I talk about that in, in another part of the book. I'll, I'll read that little that bit mm. a little bit later. But I almost see her in the same way. And it was, the, it was the, in the only stories that I really have of her. And even those stories, you know, they've been passed down through generations. So nobody's really sure if they're, if they're right or not. But I, I, yeah, I always see her alone with her kids and her dogs at the part of her life after she's left Wangaratta and she's walking along the Murray. We know that she was a domestic in the house of um, William Clark. He was a, a rich person in Wangaratta. They call him the father of Wangaratta. He built a cathedral, did all kinds of very important white man things. And um, one of the reasons she was so hard to find was because she was a domestic in his house, she didn't go to Corrindirk, so she wasn't in the mission. There were no mission records. And then because so many of her children were born while she was in that household, they then had his surname. So it was unclear about who had actually, who was their mother mm. at that point. But we know that there was a point where she, she decided that all the advantages that she could have being a domestic were totally outweighed by not being on her own country. And she just walked out and took her kids with her and spent the rest of her time walking up and down the Murray, camping in between a Echuca and Beechworth mm. until eventually um, she passed away somewhere on that river. And so I always see her there in that, in that place along that river. Judith, thank you. Um, do you feel comfortable enough now to open the floor for questions? Yeah. Um, I'll read the last little mm -hmm. part here so that Everybody gets a sense of what Charlotte was like, and then mm. let's do questions. Great. Yeah. I'll just, this is just a little prose thing. It's from the middle of the book. Um, <coughs> the book is an imaginary biography of Charlotte called Tracking Charlotte. In the photograph, Charlotte wears a possum skin cloak fastened on one shoulder with a brooch of pointed wood. The same cloak a Bangarang elder wrapped me in years later when he found me. Her copper-coloured skin is marked with the kinship scars of Goanna. Her hair, wiry like mine, is decorated with pelican feathers tucked into a headband of twisted possum skin. We know that Charlotte walked out of the Clark household in Wangaratta in the 1840s or 50s, following the tracks of Milawar Tongala, the Murray River, between Echuca and Beechworth. We know she died later of snake bite, that she was buried by her children in the river's arms in a place no one has found. I see Charlotte in my mind's eye, slipping under towering river gums by night, followed by her children and dogs, her youngest carried against her breast in a woven pouch, and she's whispering to them in the old language, in the river's soft nocturnal syllables, like a call of wood ducks, like the splash of long-necked turtles under water lilies. She's telling them about an old lady in the every when, who walked here in the company of three dingoes, dragging a digging stick behind her to leave a track and how a snake was hunting her, thrashing side to side in the darkness behind her, carving rivers into the land's skin. And as she's speaking, she's remembering this river in the time before smallpox, before domestic slavery was the only way to avoid the missions, remembering travelling just like this with her own mother from camp to camp, following the river's curve through salt bush and out into the Mallee Plains. 
where her mother taught her to steep gum blossoms for tea, to grind, grind seeds into fine flowers for cakes. She carries a memory of her mother's last days, sitting beside a midden of broken shells and ash, smoking a pipe. If you know how to look, even when the night is moonless, you can find the old paths burned into the reeds here and reach the river. In this imagined night flight, Charlotte is going there now, tracing those old paths back, and the river will grow her children into its mudflats under trees of nesting fairy wrens where country still belongs to itself. No missions, no domestic placements in rich white houses. She will take back her name, Miloa. She'll be free until country takes her back into its body, and her children will cover her in saplings, in animal teeth and the claws of lobsters, her heels drawn up behind her back in a place of sighing water in the last ceremony grounds of that river snake. Oh, Judith, thank you. So, do we have any questions? Is it on? Yeah. Thanks, Judith. I'm very much looking forward to the book and what's in there. But um, before um, other people get to ask probably more useful questions, how did you come across the photograph and how has it been kept? And, and why was a photograph of a woman of that period taken, do you think? It was, um, it was literally in a book called The Aborigines of Northern Victoria, which was sitting on the bookshelf of uh, Uncle Freddie. Um, he uh, got in touch with me. I, I had written out all the names I knew in my family tree and sent them to all of the Aboriginal corporations in Victoria in this kind of act of desperation. Um, and uh, it, it was years before I got an answer and it was from him. And he said, come to see me in Gerildery and I've got some answers for you. So I drove down there. And um, he knew things about my family that he couldn't possibly have known. Um, and he pulled out this book and he said, I wish there was more. And there was a woman in the book, she's not even named in the book. The person who took the photograph didn't know who she was. They pieced it back together, um, who she must have been because of the kids that were with her at the time were recognisable and they were known, so they were able to work out that that was her. As far as we know, it's the only, um, the only existing photograph of her, or at least it's the only one we've found. My understanding is that there's a, um, the original version of that photograph is in the um, bowels somewhere of the Victorian State Library. Um, Uncle Freddie's sons are in the process of trying to track that photograph down at the moment, but we don't know where it is. And we, it, it must have been taken by um, an anthropologist. Hi, Judith. Um, I've loved your talk tonight. I've got two questions. The first question is, when's your book going to be published? <laughs> and the second question is, what was it like sewing spiders' legs back on the body of spiders? <laughs> <laughs> the book, um, I, I'm hoping that the, um, the chapbook on Charlotte is going to be out toward the end of this year. The larger book on connection with countries is taking a little bit longer, but 
probably not too much longer than that, so I'm hoping the beginning of next year. It's really hard to sew legs back on a spider, particularly when you've got old lady eyesight like me and you need your glasses to see anything. But the thing is, glue doesn't work. <laughs> it just doesn't really hold. And, and also holding a body, the body of a spider and the leg of a spider long enough to make it actually stick like that, it's, just, it's, it's really not good for your mental health. You can do it quite quickly with cotton. <laughs> Uh, Judith, thanks very much for the talk. It's great. I just wonder whether you can show us an image of Charlotte. You've talked about her, but can we see an image? Or have I gone to sleep in the middle of something? <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, uh, can you talk about the Nangala, or Nangala, however it's pronounced that you, you, you have in your name? Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have a, a, a picture of her in the, in the slideshow. Um, I probably should have done that, but... Yeah, there's only one photograph of her, so um, I'll put it up on my webpage for anyone who's interested to see it. Um, I spent 20 years trying to sort of unpick this. After my uncle sort of said, you know, um, it's pretty obvious we're not Scottish, <laughs> I, I started looking. Um, I started looking in earnest after he passed away. Um, and I reached a point where I was just getting nowhere. At that that time I was director of Manny Clark House and a, a lovely Welpry man who some of you will have met actually, um, Wanta Jumper Jimper, Steve Patrick, was staying there and I was telling him all of this, this whole sad story and he just said to me, you're never going to find her, you're going to drive yourself crazy running around looking for this ghost. Why don't you come back with me, come onto country, meet some of the old ladies there and just don't worry about it. Form your own relationship with country. Stop trying to legitimise this relationship. And so, you know, over time I did that. I, I started um, spending a lot of time in Walpuri country. I still do. I spend several months a year, every year, except for last year because of COVID. I spend out there with the old ladies. I was talking to them on the phone today about the fact that I was coming here to, to talk to all of you guys. Um, and in uh, Walpuri community, everybody has to have a skin name because uh, it's about kinship. You have to know um, what a person's skin name is so that you, you know that you're allowed to talk to them. There are some avoidance relationships. And if a person comes into a community and spends a lot of time there or decades there, as in my case, um, you have to be absolutely certain that you don't have to have an avoidance relationship with them. So Nangala is the skin name that they gave me which means um, the water that moves, um, because I was running around trying to search for ancestry. <laughs> um, and um, in, a, in a sense, they sort of became um, the Aboriginal family that I didn't have, you know, in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, you know. And then they gave me the strength to keep looking. They kept encouraging me and... And, um, and now there's a little bit of a relationship they have with Bangarang people through me, which I'm really, I'm really happy about as well. So I, I keep that name Nangala to honour to honour them and to honour my relationship with them. And just a couple of weeks ago, you were up country. Yeah, um, there are, the Walpuri have just you know they really are in many ways the family of my heart. You know they've given me so much that means a lot to me. But one of the greatest gifts they ever gave me was this mangy little half dead dingo pup. You know. <laughs> completely covered in ticks and fleas and bald. And I remember 
ringing my, my um, incredibly tolerant and patient partner, Ben, and saying to him, I've got bad news and good news. Um, the bad news is I'm bringing home a dingo puppy, and the good news is he has mange. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> because I took him from country, um, the old lady said to me, well, if you're going to take him from country, you've got to promise to bring him back. You've got to give him all his dog commands in Walpuri language so he understands, and he's got to come back to his land. And so every year I take him back to country, and... Uh, I lose him as soon as I show up in Lajamanu. He goes into the house of one old lady or another and they all shout at him in Walpuri, which he understands because, <laughs> because we shout at him in, Wal in Walpuri language at home as well. But uh, this last trip was unusual because I went up on the motorbike and put him on the back of the motorbike so we, it was a little bit harder. Yeah. And it rained. And, and it rained and, and there were all the normal kind of problems. But the great thing about, about that is... is in being on a motorbike particularly, you really have this sense of being on the country, you know. In a car, you're kind of cut off from the country because you've got walls and a ceiling. And when you're in a motorbike, you really feel that you're there. You're in the country when you're sleeping. You're sleeping on the ground and, and, and you have that, that sense. And when you're doing that with, a, with an animal too, watching all that, the reactions, he was completely indifferent to the whole motorbike thing until he saw the McDonnell Rangers. And then he knew where we were and he started barking and you just see that sense of, oh, I, even he was saying, I'm back, I'm, I'm in the country of my heart, you know, I'm, I'm my mother country. And while you were there, and I hope it's okay to share this, um, you caught up with an old fella. Yeah. One of the, um, the very first people I met in Lajamanu is an extraordinary man, Henry Jakamara Cook. And uh, when I met him, actually, I was just, I, I was, had just received a diagnosis that I had cancer. And uh, at that stage, I didn't know if I was gonna live or die. I was, felt like Schrodinger's cat, you know, in between half alive, half dead. And I'd done this trip out there into the desert and as an old man was the first person I saw when I got out of the four-wheel drive, and I just sort of landed on him. Oh, I'm going to die. And he was like, oh, my God, is this this crazy woman? <laughs> he says to me, we're all going to die. You might just get there a bit quicker. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Henry at the time was 101 years old, and his leg was in plaster because the table he'd been dancing on had broken. <laughs> He's now 111 and I, w I went to visit him in Rocky Ridge Nursing Home where they've put him. Henry is the last surviving eyewitness of the Coniston Massacre. Um, when you read about the Coniston Massacre, you'll, in depth you'll read about uh, an Aboriginal man named Bullfrog who had um, a number of kids that were running around with him and, and Henry was one of, those, one of those kids. And so he, he's really the last person who can can talk about what he saw at that time and not just present it in terms of statistics and, and you know, mm. historical reconstructions. And so, um, yeah, um, the National Library was good enough to, to, um, to send up a voice recorder so that we could get him to tell his story again about running around with Bullfrog and all the things that occurred during that time of, of massacre. So the library's got that here now um, in the or oral history. So I'm really, really pleased about that. Mm. And it's, it's 
again, another one of all one of those wonderful outcomes that are delivered through programs like the research fellowships. And it gives us greater knowledge to share with our communities. It gives us deeper understanding. I mean, to be able to listen to Uncle tell his story, um, what an incredible gift that is. So yeah. Judith, thank you for sharing with us this evening. Um, just before I, I wrap up, I was given some speaking notes um, and I've got a little message that I have to read that goes like this. For those of you in the audience who are also creative writers or creative artists in any field, you may be interested in applying for a Creative Arts Fellowship yourself and the chance to immerse yourself in the National Library's collection. Um, applications for the 2022 uh, Creative Arts Fellowships will open on Monday, the 7th of June. Um, so the application guidelines are, are, are on our website. Please have a look and, um, and do consider what a four-week residency might be able to achieve through your cultural practice. Um, in saying that, Judith, thank you. Can we all... <laughs> thank you. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>